0: You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast.
1: I've been thinking a lot recently about history. The thing that nobody wanted to study in high school, but as you get older, you realise how important it was, how important it is. Um, It strikes me that it's important that we understand what God has done in history, because the things that have happened in the past impact the way the world is today. The passage of scripture that we're going to focus on uh, tonight and next Sunday night is a record of a historical event, something that actually happened. It happened just a few years after Jesus uh, died and was resurrected and went up to heaven. And this event had a massive effect that changed the course of history and indeed, unless you're a Jew, uh, it is this event that opened the door for you and it opened the door for me to know the truth about God. It was the moment when early Christians, who were all Jews, finally understood that the message about Jesus was not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world, and that God wanted to draw the whole world to himself. And you know what's key about this event? God initiated it, and God made it happen. In a moment, Kelvin is going to read the story to us in full. But before we do that, a couple of stories from uh, Neil and from Roz um,
0: that really illustrate how God draws people. So um, uh, Joe and I are with Operation Mobilization, and we (laughs) work. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. We work in uh, 110 different countries, and quite a few of our workers are in the Middle East and and North Africa, and some of the places uh, on this earth where there's the least access to hearing about Jesus because of um, uh, religious or uh, legal restrictions, uh, it can be very dangerous to share your faith. But in the midst of um, these areas where it's so difficult... God is still making his voice heard and and he goes ahead of us to touch people's hearts. I just want to share one story. Uh, One of our workers was going out uh, in a country I can't mention, uh, going out and uh, meeting with somebody, ran into somebody he'd met, a local person he'd met but uh, didn't know very well and this person seemed agitated and said, I need to talk to you," he said. "Yeah, sure. Let's let's go have a coffee." And uh, he says, "So what's what's concerning you? What you you look quite distressed." He says, "I've I've I've had a dream, and I I don't understand what it means." He says, sure, Tell me your dream." He says, "Well, I I was I was dreaming that I was in my bed, and that suddenly uh, there was somebody in the room with me, and I looked up." And there I saw the prophet Isa standing at the end of my bed. Now, for those who may not have heard about it, Isa is is an Arabic name for Jesus. So for them, he's just the prophet Jesus, just another one of of the prophets. Um, And so the prophet Isa stood at the end of his bed and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he woke up. And he says, well, but how could this be? I mean, you, you know, this, this Esau is, is just a prophet. How could he be the way, the truth, and the life? And so at that time, our worker was able to share the true story of Jesus with him. And uh, the, um, it, again, it's just a, one of these examples of the fact that it's not just about us going and doing things, but it's about Jesus preparing people's hearts and leading them to himself.
2: Hello, I'm Roslyn, and Kelvin and myself and our two kids lived for six and a half years on the Arctic Circle, working amongst uh, um, the Nenets people. They're a group of nomadic reindeer herders. And we had the privilege of seeing God at work there too. One of the privileges of being a cross-cultural worker is that you you go thinking you're taking a specific message, but when you get there, you realise that God really is at work there already. And actually, we're just along for the ride to see what he's doing. Um, the Nenets people are nomadic reindeer deer herders. They live out on the vast Arctic tundra. It's very cold. It's quite an isolated life. And most... In most recent history, Nenets people have grown up in a Russian school system where they're told that there is no God. But Nenets people laugh at that. They say, you can't live on the tundra without God. They may not know that that God is a loving God, but they know that there is a creator God, Num, and uh, you can't live on the tundra without that. Another thumbprint of God, if you like, that we noticed amongst the Nenets people was this uh, whole cultural idea that you need to keep harmony, uh, keep harmony in relationships, keep harmony with the the surrounding countryside, the climate, so there are certain things that you're allowed to do, there are lots of things you're not allowed to do in order to keep this harmony And uh, when we are able to bring the gospel and explain that this is a way of keeping harmony between ourselves and God and restoring that harmony between ourselves and their creator God, Num, then there is a much higher understanding and a much wider understanding of who God is. And to us, that was just a, a sign that God was already there. Um... They needed to know about Jesus to be sure of their salvation, but they already knew about God, about Noah.
1: Kelvin, we'll get you to jump up in a moment and uh, read this, but just Karen's going to bring a message to us tonight reflecting on the passage that Kelvin reads. So let's just pray for Karen before we do that. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the things that have been recorded of what you have done Um, that teaches your heart for for us as individuals and for all the nations of the world. And, God, as we listen to to your word now, I pray that uh, you would open our hearts to to really understand uh, its impact and its relevance for us. And as Karen uh, expounds on your word, I pray that uh, you would speak through her to all of us for the things that you're wanting us to hear this evening. In Jesus' name, Amen.
3: The Bible passage that we're talking about over these next, today and next Sunday is Acts chapter 10. So if you'd like to open that and read along with me, I'll just wait a moment while you find it. The book of Acts, chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the household about the sixth hour to pray. for I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. The voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and asked whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, "'Stand up, I too am a man.' And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, "'You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation.' But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your arms have, to, have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptising these people who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay for some days.
4: Hi everyone, I'm Karen. Um, for those who don't know, um, and I guess the reason I'm I'm here is because um, I've been privileged to be part of the exciting aspect of God's work in the world that is cross-cultural mission. Um, yeah, Peter and myself and our kids were missionaries in uh, Uzbekistan and then Tajikistan, which are Muslim nations in Central Asia, um, for seven years until and we. We came back in 2011 um, and um, what, a, yeah, what a huge privilege it was. So I want to take some time now to highlight first from Acts 10 and then a bit from our own experiences the wonderful fact that mission, making disciples of all nations, both here and to the ends of the earth, really is God's idea and God's work done by God's power and we get to take part in it and be significant players in it. While at the same time he is in sovereign control over it all. Uh, Nick, if I get hard to hear, someone just do this, all right? <laughs> okay, so Acts 10, which Kelvin just read, really, really shows this very clearly. Um, we know from Scripture... From ages past, it was God's plan to bless all nations. Um, so back when God called Abraham, in Genesis 12:3, he said, you know, I, all nations will be blessed through you. So Abraham became the father particularly of the Israelites, the Jewish nation, who were a nation that God raised up in particular to show his character to the world. Um, ...but that thread of God's concern for all nations runs throughout the Old Testament. And I'm not going to go into the details of of that. But um, now the Jewish people by the time of of this passage, by the time of Acts... um, ...they, as, as you can see from Acts 10, they were very conscious that they should remain separate from Gentiles... There was this tension in, in scripture, really, that on one hand, God made it clear that he wanted to bless all nations, um, that he had a concern and a heart for all nations, but at the same time, he had called the Jewish people to actually be separate, um, and specifically, um, yeah, there were a number of times when God you know, said, do not mix with, the, with those other nations, um, because... Know, basically, they would get the wrong ideas, ungodly ideas, and practices from them. And really, that was a downfall, downfall of the Israelites a lot of times in their history. So, good Jews like Peter and the other apostles of Christ had grown up with this idea ingrained in them that they needed to remain separate from Gentiles. Um, and even, you know, while, while Jesus. ...showed love to all sorts of people. Even Jesus had said, you know, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. So I just want to say you can't blame Peter for his um, resistance... To, um, ...to what God was telling him to do in this vision. So, um, but at the beginning of Acts 10... ...we first hear about God's preparation of Cornelius and his family. So, you know, we, we know that Peter is clearly not has no intention of going and preaching to Gentiles, but God is already at work in Cornelius. Um, Cornelius is living in a a Jewish city amongst Jewish people and he presumably has experienced that, that shunning by Jewish people. He and his family, they're Romans, they're unclean, they're uncircumcised according to the Jews and although it is said that the Jews respected him, Um, At the same time, you know, he never would have been invited into a Jewish home or had anyone come into his home. Nevertheless, despite this, this, um, Cornelius had recognised the good in the Jewish law and Jewish ways and um, come to fear their God. Um, So there is God at work in Cornelius. And then, of course, this amazing vision that God sends to Cornelius. Meanwhile, okay, so Peter... Uh so God, God knows Peter's gut feelings about Gentiles. You know, on one hand, Peter has spent all these years with Jesus. He has had a lot of his preconceived ideas or judge, judgments sort of blown away by what Jesus has done, has been involved in miracles, resurrections. The reason Peter is in Joppa is because he's just raised uh, this lady Tabitha from the dead. Um, so... And yet yet Peter's um, sense about Gentiles and mixing with Gentiles has remained there. And God is so gracious. Um, The time has come for God to bring about this this really significant event in history where he um, begins to bring Gentiles sort of en masse into the kingdom. And he's decided to work through Peter. But um, Peter has this resistance to what God wants to do. But look, so God... Okay, he, he sends in this vision, this bizarre vision and, um, and he does it three times. <laughs> so he gets his vision three times, he receives Peter's objection, it's a bit unclear whether it was once or three times. Okay, Peter knows it's God sending the vision. You know, he says, you know, surely not Lord, um, I've never eaten anything that's unclean and God says very clearly, you know, do not call anything unclean unclean that I have declared clean. So anyway, Peter's stunned by this vision and wondering what it means. And and it is at that moment that these visitors from Cornelius arrive. And the spirit says to him so clearly, you know, do not hesitate to go with these men because I have sent them. Um, And we then to just quickly note about Peter… One thing, he's in prayer, he's a man who has a habit of prayer and that's the time that God speaks to him, this amazing revelation that is going to revolutionise the world. Um, that's the position he's in when God speaks and that's so often the case in scripture. Uh, yeah, I think of Daniel the prophet, I think of Paul and Barnabas and their people at Antioch when, again, God gave them a significant command to... Um, you know, I think it tells us, it just gives us a hint that maybe if we want to be children of God that, that hear our Father speaking and if we want to be servants that hear our Master's commands, we need to have a regular habit of being in prayer with him and listening to him. But um, the other wonderful thing about Peter is his obedience. Okay, so he's quite sure now that the command is from God. This, I suppose he felt like probably an absolute revulsion at the thought of going. Well, actually, the first thing he actually did was invite these men in. And to make things worse, it wasn't even his own house, it was the home of um, another Jewish man. Um, but you know, he is obedient <laughs> in spite of all his feelings. He knows God's spoken and he does what he's told. So we see how God in his sovereign way has worked both through um, both through Peter's qualities that he has received from God his prayerfulness, his obedience, um, but also God overcomes so graciously his his resistance and his wrong ideas. Um, you know, God has had this, this purpose for this time in mind for thousands of years and has arranged the circumstances and worked through people and their godly and not so godly qualities to bring it about. He is awesomely sovereign. And I just want to spend some time, a little bit of time on this aspect of God's sovereignty because it has become, to me, really key, a really precious thing to understand in many ways. Um, You know, as we went through time, I'll talk a little bit more about our time in Central Asia, but I will just say that so much seemed to go wrong. There were wonderful, so many wonderful things went right and we saw God do wonderful things, but so many things went so badly pear-shaped and... um, and including the fact that we left when we d- we had, that we had to leave um, that was not not in our plans at all um, but it is so good to know God is sovereign and so um, I will just just share a few scriptures um on that topic, but just to say, I think we have a tendency sometimes to make excuses for God when bad things happen even even when we say God allowed this or God allowed that. It's it's true, but it's more than that. God is actually sovereignly in control of even the bad things that happen. Um, You know, and it it hurts sometimes to think that God has deliberately decided that some painful things and unspeakably evil things will happen. Um, And many, many of us struggle with this doctrine before coming to a place of being a piece about it, but the Bible is thick with it. Um, let me just read some scriptures. I should acknowledge um, the book "Desiring God" by John Piper in this, just because I've yeah you know, I've found in the last few years in the Bible I keep coming across verses like this. But because I was running short of time to prepare this, I just went to a chapter in John Piper's book. Um, but you know the Bible says. God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to naught. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the thought of his heart to all generations. Let's remember God is as big as he is, or try to get, we'll never get that, I don't think we'll ever get our heads around it at all, but let's try and get closer. God says in Isaiah 46 verses 9 to 10, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Yes, God is sovereign even over all evil and over all Satan's works. You know, for example, Amos 3, 6. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? And then we go to what happened to Jesus. Perhaps that's the most clear example of God planning something that was unspeakably evil, in a sense. And don't please don't hear me say God hates evil. You know we know that. I hope I hope you're clear that I'm quite clear on that. He hates sin, but uh, he uses it very deliberately. So in Acts 2, uh, verse 23, Peter, preaching, says, This man, that's Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So that's just, just a tiny selection of the verses in Scripture that, that um, give us that assurance. So the great thing when we're involved with God's mission as we all are, if we you know if we've come to that place of putting our faith in Christ, God's purposes in the world will be carried out, and one of those, a very big one, is to make disciples of all nations, as in Matthew 28. Um, I got that verse right. Oh, you know the end of Matthew. <laughs> that you know, his purpose, his definite purpose that will come to pass, is that. One day, as we read in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, there will be a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb in worship. Um, so I hope that's a comfort. And, um, and please, if you're hurt by anything I've said there, um, talk, talk to me or someone pastoral afterwards. Um, yeah, but really, um, yeah, it's good to know the Bible really well. <laughs> just, yeah, because y- you do hear things that just are a little bit, just a little bit not quite right sometimes. Now, as I said before, I have personally found great solace in this truth. It, it gives me much peace to know that God is in control. And uh, one particular reason it gives me a lot of comfort is I know I can't really mess up God's mission by my incompetence or my sin? And I would like to share just some stories about how we've seen this play out, out on, on the field. Um, first, actually, I'd just like to share, too, a little bit of how God called us, because that's part of, you know, when we look at how God works, It's sometimes it's through us, and it's so often through other people and the way they speak to us. It's also often in spite of us, um, but this is just how God spoke to me and I think Peter's very similar. We both really um, got interested or started considering missions through um, uh, a group we were involved in at different times because Peter's a fair bit older than me. Um, <laughs> at uh, uni, it was called Students for Christ. So, but they were very um, focused on mission. But let me just tell you some statistics that they're, they're roughly current. They're mostly from some time in the last 10 years anyway. So this is just a bit of a plug for missions, but it is relevant to the whole theme, let me promise. Okay. So regarding mission, God's mission to the people that he's already at work amongst, all those tribes and languages, you know, that, that thousands and thousands of language groups that many thousands, praise God now, have, the, have some scripture in their language and they have some believers there that they can learn about Christ from, but so many don't. So of the 7.3 billion people in the world it's a little out of date 3 billion live among unreached people groups of the world and 1.6 billion are completely unevangelized have heard nothing of Jesus around 30 million people in a year will perish without hearing the message of salvation this is an interesting one in AD 100 there were 12 unreached people groups ...for every single congregation of believers. Now, there is one unreached people group for every 1,000 congregations. It just makes the task look somewhat doable for the the body of Christ. Okay, challenging one. American Christians, I'm assuming Australians are probably roughly the same... ...spend 95% of offerings on home-based ministry... 4.5% on cross-cultural efforts in already-reached people groups and 0.5% to reach the unreached. Um, 91% of all Christian outreach or evangelism does not target non-Christians but targets other Christians. Okay, and of foreign mission funding, so that's the portion of church or Christian giving that actually goes to foreign missions... 87% goes for work among those already Christian. 12% for work among already evangelised but non-Christian. 1% for work among the unevangelised and unreached people. Um, I actually got a little bit teary when I was looking at these things again uh, the other day. Um, So no condemnation. Okay, God is in control. God is sovereign over all this. He's sovereign over the fact that the church hasn't yet actually reached all tribes, languages and so forth. Um, but, uh, you know, that's that's how God spoke to me and, and to uh, Peter. So, where was I? Sorry. Yeah, so let me just share. So, anyway, so we went. We figured, okay, we may not be particularly gifted, etc., etc., et, cetera, et cetera, but someone's got to go. <laughs> so that was how we sort of started on the path to mission. And... um. You know, and I guess that calling was confirmed uh, perhaps as we went. But um, so just some of the things that God did in spite of our weakness and inabilities. Um, so we went to Uzbekistan in 2004 with at that time three little kids, Daniel and Hannah and Karis, who were five, three and one. And um, we had a little language school. We were joining a team who was already there in Samarkand, Uzbekistan. Um... So our team leaders who um, had been there a few years, they had organised a language school for us, which was basically a language helper, a couple of language helpers and a cook and some child carers um, for the kids. And um, these were dear friends of theirs that they had been sharing with and wanting to witness to for years and years. And they had the language, um, but they hadn't really got very far, they felt, with this particular family. As it turns out, they had probably got more than they realised because... At, as we had a language school, as, you know, suggested by our team leader, it wasn't our idea, we had a little devotion at the start of each day in, in English and um, we we just read a portion of scripture and that was pretty much it. And then, um, and Mahbubah, who was our main helper, got started getting really interested in asking all these questions about Christ. Malv Judah, who was the cook, she wanted to leave the cooking and come and listen as well. Um... Natasha, who was the kids, she was a, of Russian background um, and, you know, had a, a vague Christian background. Uh, she started coming along as, as well. <laughs> and, like, this, this fascination for the word, and we weren't even in the language. We, you know, God just, just used it. It was amazing. Um, Natasha, you know, was then able to be connected with a, a local Russian believer and was discipled. And, you know, she became a Christian and was discipled. The others, you know, they didn't come to that point of, of giving their life to Christ but they, um, you know, they took some significant steps. Um, All right, fast forward a few years. We had been kicked out of um, Uzbekistan and we were in uh, Tajikistan. We were working among Tajik people in Uzbekistan and so when we had to leave Uzbekistan, we, with our team, two other families, crossed the border into Tajikistan and began to kind of try and recoup and work out what God wanted us to do there. But in the middle of that, sort of in the middle of that time... Uh, ...we were staying in the capital city. Um, again, we were in a state of weakness, I would say, at this point. A sort of state of limbo. But um, we are just living in this house in the capital city... ...and one night there was a knock on the door. And there was this lady um, with her three children... ...a 12-year-old boy and two little girls in distress. Uh, did not speak Tajik or English... Um, but she spoke Russian and Uzbek. We couldn't really communicate with her. But her son had a, knew a little bit of Tajik. They were actually an Uzbek family. They had been kicked out of their home by their mother in, by her mother-in-law um, and the father, husband, and they had nowhere to stay. So <laughs> we knew that God, Jesus said, you know, you know, welcome strangers into your home. Um, it's quite clear that we need to do that. Um, so. We did. We let them stay with us. Had no idea about these people. They were a, probably fairly traumatised but in any case quite dysfunctional <laughs> family. <laughs> and um, uh, it was hard. It was the most stressful week of my life, I think. They, so they, you know, stayed with us. But um, I can't remember even how but, um, you know, we at one point in the first couple of days we gave, we showed Ozada the Russian Bible that we had in our home. She started reading it. Um, ...we put her in touch with friends, missionary friends who were Uzbek-speaking... ...who were working with Uzbek people. Um, do see, yeah. the, these countries in Central Asia have you know, a number of different language groups living within them... ...and so um, there are a number of people working with Uzbeks in Tajikistan... ...just as we'd worked with Tajiks in Uzbekistan. So, so this um, missionary friend um, met with Ozida, and Ozida gave her life to Christ... Like she, I forgot to say, she was quite a devout Muslim. She was doing her, you know, regular prayers and washing, cleansing herself and so forth each morning. Um, and she came to faith in Christ, <laughs> just like that. And, um, you know, we still couldn't do much with her and, and um, you know, we didn't always get along very well. I wasn't – yeah, I wasn't – as I said, I was really stressed. I, I got really cross with her at times, her and her kids. <laughs> and our kids got cross with their kids at times. <laughs> But, you know, but nevertheless, the relationship, you know was was good. And the beautiful thing was that after you know, we got her sorted out, she found someone found her a home to stay in, and she got her rela- she got into a con- local congregation. And a few months later, we happened to come across her. um she actually guided another believing friend to our house. And she was transformed before she'd been a sort of had this drawn face, she was worried, she was stressed, she was, was sort of like this, you know, and she turned into this beaming w- woman just full of, um, you know, life and confidence. Just, we didn't, again, we couldn't, still couldn't speak a language so we couldn't actually have a conversation with her. <laughs> but she was um, transformed. And again, like just God doing stuff through our weaknesses. Um, and then I'll quickly go on to another, another story I have to share, although a lot of you probably heard it. But, um, you know, God also, of course, does work throughout planning and preparation and hard work of language learning and culture acquisition and so forth. Another couple of years after the um, the story I was just talking about, we were, you know, basically established in a new place of ministry in a town, in the remote place in the mountains of Tajikistan, um, which was a, a beautiful place, um, if somewhat dangerous at times. But I'm um, not going into that. But um, uh, we had the kids... ...made friends with um, kids in the neighbourhood. And we often had um, their friends in our house. Um, I, but I will say too that before we moved to this place... ...which was called the town of Garm in the, the Rush Valley... ...which we used to call in our newsletters the Dust Valley. And unfortunately I think we gave a wrong impression... ...about the sort of place it was. Because um, it, it wasn't dusty. <laughs> it was lush and beautiful. But... Um, uh, so the kids would have... their kids' friends would often be over and... Uh, Um, Oh yeah, sorry, I was going to say, before we ever moved there, we really deliberately spent a lot of time praying for our future neighbourhood, the future friends. We felt that if we were going to, particularly for me, I knew that if I was going to have any sort of ministry, it had to be at home. I wasn't going to be able to leave home to go and uh, meet people in other places. So we really prayed for that and God just so answered these prayers and we just had this beautiful relationship with the people in our neighbourhood. But these kids would be over at our home and I started to pray, you know, God, how can I you know, start to somehow share the gospel with these kids and I tried to sort of think up something, maybe some, you know, colouring. They used to love drawing and colouring. They didn't get much of that stuff at their own home so they come and do drawing and stuff. Um, but I didn't really come up with anything. And then one day the girl's friend, Haricha was at our home when it was time for our family devotions. So we got out our little, this beautiful, simple little children's Bible. With, um, it was both in English and Tajik. So we read this really simple know, one or two really simple Bible stories with Khadija there... ...and we prayed, probably, I think. And, um, th- well, the next day she wanted to do it again. And this evolved into us having uh, a meeting with local neighbourhood kids. Now, this is a fairly fundamentalist Islamic place... ...and our home was actually next door to the local mosque... ...the local sort of tea house, the place where the men gathered for prayer. Um, uh, in fact, the girls used to have Islamic lessons from the lady next door... ...and then come over to what was called kitoponi, which means book reading in our place. So we had this regular gathering of kids um, on our Karavot, ...which is a, you know, just a basic platform you can sit on outside... ...for Bible reading from this little book. Um, some singing, we taught them some tragic Christian songs to worship Jesus. And prayer. And we just used to say, you know, you can pray to God about anything... ...and um, what, you know, what, what problems are there, and we'd pray for their families... Um, this is incredible. And when I used to lend them the book so that the p- families all knew what was going on, we'd, I'd lend the kids the book and tell them, and say, go and show your parents, you know, what, you, what you're looking at, what we're reading, and um, bring it back tomorrow. And so we had this and we, you know, we shared the gospel um, with these kids. And they know it. They have it. You know, God, you know, in his grace, no doubt, will keep it there in their hearts. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't go on to tell you the rest of the story, but, you know… It's just, just amazing. In, in, uh, I suppose my last point I just want to perhaps emphasise is the... ...you know, we're, we're talking about God going ahead and preparing the people that we go to. He prepared Cornelius. Um, Neil's story that he shared before about the Muslim receiving the dream. We just have heard so many similar stories um, of Muslims receiving dreams. And I just want to say... Um, ...yeah, about the importance of prayer... In receiving, in, in um, the preparation of people receiving the gospel, in the Muslim world, for I'm, I'm sorry, I meant to look up these facts properly before t- before now, but I forgot. But basically, from the start of Islam in the 600 AD or so, in that time until this century, there had been basically the conversions were all. ...to Islam, from Christian to Islam, Christian to Islam... ...there had been one notable movement of Muslims to Christianity... ...in Indonesia in the 1800s. And there had been maybe a couple more early last century... ...in the 20th century. Now, in about the 1980s, there began a movement to pray... ...of Christians all around the world to pray for Muslims. And during Ramadan, a lot of you probably know about this... ...during the Muslim month of fasting... millions and millions, it's way more than 20 million people... ...around the world use a prayer guide and pray for Muslims... ...that they'll, you know, they'll be blessed and they'll come to faith in Christ. Now, since the 1980s, there have been... ...can someone at least... ...this is at the very least 70, you know, identifiable people movements... ...of Muslims to faith in Christ. And I think that's gone up a notch in the last few years... ...with um, with the, just the unrest and the, the refugee crisis and all this... <laughs> You know, God just, he, yeah, he gives them dreams of Jesus. You hear this all the time. So many of them come to Christ through a dream or a miracle, a healing miracle. Like God is doing amazing things. You should read the books. <laughs> if you want some exciting reading, you know, missionary biographies, in particular, just find out what's going on in the Muslim world. I mean, we had some, a speaker recently, which is a fantastic talk about this. But prayer, just people asking God, just coming before God and saying, please... Please, God, save the Muslims, <laughs> no. um, All right, I better stop. So let me just, um, yeah, just finish with a quick prayer and then Rachel is going to come up and lead us in some more um, good stuff. <laughs> Lord, I just, you just deserve all the, all the glory, all the honour, you know, that it's your mission, it's your work in the world. You are doing amazing things that no one... Could, could have even dreamed of. Thank you for the wonderful, gracious things you do in each of our personal lives and the little, relatively small things we see. Thank you for the amazing stuff you're doing all around the world, for the glory of the name of Jesus. And we just, we just want that name of Jesus to be glorified. We want your love to be known, Lord. We want your, um, your character, your graciousness, your majesty, your glory to be known throughout the world. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen
5: i um, just like to read this poem, Out of Sight and Out of Mind. Sometimes we see the suffering of others far away and it pulls upon our heartstrings for a moment anyway and we long to help the hungry and the unsaved and the blind. Then we turn our focus elsewhere, out of sight and out of mind. For what on earth can we do over here so far from there? Some might give a token offering. Some might pray a token prayer. Some might even feel God asking them to take him to their shore, where the cold, hard fact confronts them. They're in need of so much more. If we tell them about Jesus and just bid them go in peace, if we feed their souls with God's truth, will it make their hunger cease? If we tend their wounded spirits but don't heal their troubled skin, How much longer will it take before God's word starts sinking in? Whatever can we do, you ask? If you seek, I'm sure you'll find. For they're never out of God's sight and they never leave his mind. Let's pray. Lord, there are many, many ways that we can look beyond ourselves and be a part of bringing your word to the unreached of the world. Please show each of us how. Amen. What I'd like us to do now is just quickly break up into seven groups. There'll be seven people around um, somewhere holding up a piece of paper. So just gather quickly and we'll just pray for a few minutes um, for some of the mission workers this this church supports. Thanks.
6: God honours faithfulness and just like Cornelius was faithful and God used him in a way that really changed the world, um, we should never underestimate how God can use us. And I get the privilege to share a story. Rachel and I work with Wycliffe. We joined Wycliffe to work at a motel in Cairns. And um, this is a bit of a story about how that came about. It's about a mango farmer and the Mission Motel. Early in the 1990s, a mango farmer was looking to retire. He lived at Mariba, which is about 30 miles out of Cairns, and he offered his farm to MAF if they would use the, the funds that they raised from that to uh, support their staff and train them. At that time, MAF didn't want to go into farming and they said no and politely declined. But around this time and unaware of each other's situations, MAF, which is Mission Aviation Fellowship, and Wycliffe, which is Wycliffe Bible Translators. um, I'll shorten it for the rest of it. um, We're looking to uh, purchase accommodation in Cairns. Um, The needs of their own missionaries were overwhelming the churches with uh, being billeted out, and uh, so they needed to find an option. Through timely events, by... both MAF and Wycliffe became aware of each other's needs. Um, timely events like two people meeting on a plane and God just instrumenting that, you know. Um, amazing. They both also found out that Treetops Lodge, this motel up there, was up for a fire sale. It was valued at $750,000, going cheap at six hundred. dollars They had the property um, valuated as a business, and the guy that did that came back at about $460,000. Um, so they were interested, but both MAF and Wycliffe could only put in about 130000 each. The MAF CEO felt compelled to contact this farmer again that had contacted him earlier and he, about joining in a partnership. And the farmer, he always liked to inspect what he was investing in, so he went down to the motel and had it checked it out, and then he rang back and said, I'm in. So an offer of 460000 was made, and the bank accepted. Then the MAF CEO phoned the farmer to finalise arrangements for the partnership, and his response was, Excuse me if I get emotional. (laughs) Um, Do you not understand that I'm not interested in a partnership? This is a gift. He went on to say how he had lived his life by promises of scripture. In particular, Deuteronomy 28, verse 12, which reads, The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season and to bless all your work of your hands. You will lend to the nations, but will borrow from none. He said all his life he had lived by that standard of borrowing from none. But he had contended that he had been perplexed in that he had not, to this point, seen the fulfilment of the verse in terms of lending to the nations. So for 24 years now, Treetops Lodge has been serving the nations of Asia and the South Pacific through providing for the missionaries in those countries. You've been listening
0: to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.